the biggest frustration in pastoral ministry, it's not a leaking pipe and a, and a, and a mopping up to, to get things cleaned up. The, the biggest frustration is, is not the, the late night phone call to, to come in a, in a moment of crisis for a family. I mean, perhaps the biggest frustration in pastoral ministry is when someone admits his or her sin, but then immediately begins listing excuses. Yes, yes, I've done those things, but, but you don't know what she did to provoke my anger. Yes, I'm, I'm guilty of, 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 of all of this, but you don't understand. No one is listening to me. Yeah, I'm, you've, you've caught me. But his sin, it was just as bad or really worse than mine. Yes, yes, I'll admit I've, I've done this, that, that, that this is wrong, but only if she'll say it first. See, because a confession that rests upon excuses is no confession at all. And you know how frustrating it is to hear a flawed confession when somebody comes to apologize to you, but then immediately begins listing excuses. It's so easy to see when someone else does it, but it's so natural for us when we're the ones who have to confess. It's so natural to offer selfish excuses and to pretend that a flawed confession is a true confession. Now, Ezra, in chapters 9 and 10, at the conclusion of this book, offers us a picture of true confession and repentance, an admission of sin for what we have done wrong, and then repentance, a turning away from sin and turning toward God in obedience. And, and so we're going we're gonna to spend our, our time focusing on that and how God can apply that to our lives. But, but I have to admit, there are some questions that even before we get moving, some objections, some concerns that you have from this passage that, that need to be answered before we can even understand what's happening. So let's, let's deal with those first. First, there is, this, there is this discomfort we hear when we're told that the sin of the people is that, they, that there are these mixed marriages, or, or the editors of my Bible have given a little title at the top of chapter 9. It's Ezra's prayer about intermarriage. And historically, as Americans, it has sometimes been used to say that, that there is a race, usually the race of the person speaking, that is better than other races, and therefore you should never intermarry with someone of another race. And, and even, even here it almost seems that that's what he's saying. Look at verse 2. They have mingled the holy race. But, but that's, not, that's not what this passage is about. And at times in the history of the church when, when this has been used for racist purposes, the church has been wrong. This is not about the, the different races of people, because that language there, even in verse 2 of the holy race, it's, it's language of the seed, the holy seed that was, it, it, it takes us back to the very beginning of the Bible when, when Adam and Eve have sinned against God, and yet God offers a promise that from the seed of Eve will come the promised deliverer. Because from the beginning, the nation, the race, the people of Israel were always meant to be a blessing to all the nations. An opportunity this, this Wednesday with our, with our kids at Kids Club to, to teach the Bible lesson. And, and this week was, was on the call of Abraham, who actually at that point wasn't yet Abraham. He was just Abram. But it's the promise given to God. And, and just in the immediate verses, when the blessing is given to Abraham and his descendants, 
it is explicitly said that this blessing was so that all nations on earth would receive a blessing from God. And so if ever Israel exalted its own race, they were wrong to do so. If ever we have done so, we are wrong because the blessing was to go to all nations. See, the concern here is not about, not about the, the mixing of races. The concern is about the, 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 the spiritual idolatry that takes place when a believer marries someone who is not a believer. And, that, and that's clear because when, we, when we flip to see that the, the issue is not race but religion. When we, when we hear the warnings in, in the Bible, we, we see the warnings in, in the words of, of Ezra's prayer, but, but we could turn to Exodus 34 near the beginning of the Bible, to hear the warning when God first rescued his people and sent them into the land. The warning is not that they would marry foreigners, people unlike them. The the warning is that they would marry idolaters, those that are worshiping false gods. And so in Exodus 34, verse 16, we have the warning that comes from God. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, They will lead your sons to do the same. So the issue here is about spiritual prostitution, of selling yourself to a false god. And so a believer in the true God should only marry another believer in the true God so that they can together worship God in honor. But, but even once we have that clarified, there's, there's still a, another problem. And perhaps you haven't gotten there yet because I didn't read chapter 10. But the response, the, the confession of sin, and then the obedience that's demanded in new life is, is seen clearly in, in chapter 10, verse 11. That when these people confess their sins and repent, they have to divorce their wives. And so look at chapter 10, verse 11. Now, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. Now, this should remind us of the seriousness of the people's sin and their spiritual disobedience that sin is treason against God. But, but divorce? I mean, that seems to be the wrong application and, and, we, and we have to note that for us to apply this passage means we have to understand in the light of the teachings that come to us from Jesus and his apostles. And so this was limited, this, this direct command to divorce an unbelieving spouse was limited to this period in the, in the church's history, this period in Israel's history, when the remnant, the small remainder of God's people was at risk. Because the very question is anticipated in the New Testament if we turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he makes clear that if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are found in Christ, united to Christ, that you should only marry somebody else who is in Christ. But then he envisions the scenario of the the examples we have from Ezra, of a believer married to an unbeliever. Perhaps because as the gospel goes into different cultures, one spouse comes to faith in Jesus Christ and the other does not. And so the the question would be, do we do what Ezra commanded? Is divorce the, the response here? And the Apostle Paul makes clear that based on the work of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of God's Spirit on the church, that no, divorce is not permitted 
in that instance. Uh, the Apostle Paul says it explicitly in, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says it right in verse 12. He's speaking to, to those that are, that are married, and he says, To the rest I say this, not I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So you see the clear teaching. If you are not yet married, then you should only marry in the Lord. If you are married and your spouse is not a believer, then you must not divorce. And, and lest we get confused and only apply this to, to husbands divorcing wives, he, in the very next verse, makes sure we understand, no, this applies both ways. In chapter 7, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Through the outpouring of the, the Holy Spirit, God can work redemptively even in a difficult marriage. And, and, I, I, and again, I don't want this to, I, I'm moving quickly to, to sort of move the biggest objections from Ezra away so that we can apply God's word. But, but I recognize to talk about marriage, to talk about divorce, to entertain the possibilities of remarriage, these are difficult questions. And so if you are concerned about, but what should I do? How do these passages apply to me? Then come talk with me. Come talk with one of the other pastors or one of our elders so that we can walk with you. Because marriage is meant to be a gift given to us by God for our spiritual blessing. Now, but, but maybe your concern doesn't really have much to do with Ezra specifically. Maybe you have just a bigger underlying question. When we talk about marriage, when we talk about who you should marry, what's the right way to, to go through life. Maybe your, your question is, why does God care so much about who I sleep with? Right? I mean, culturally, maybe that's the, the question you've walked in with today. Why does this matter? Why does the church get so hung up on these kinds of issues? But see, I think if, if, if that's your, your concern, if that's the, the attitude you come, come in with, you've actually already partially answered the question, or maybe even fully answered the question. Because to assume that, that this is an area that we should just leave off limits, we shouldn't talk about it, God should get up out of my business, then, then, then you've already jumped to the conclusion that morality is entirely personal. It's up to you to decide what's right and wrong. And yet if we are a people who declare Jesus to be Lord, the absolute sovereign king of our lives, then that means every aspect of our lives, from the way we spend our money, the way we worship, the way we enter into relationships, matters. And so God is not a killjoy trying to, to ruin your fun. God wants what's best for you and offers you a joy-filled and loving, protective relationship, the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, in order to express the joy of sexual love. Okay, now that was a fairly large introduction. Because we haven't actually even said what the passage, I've mostly just told you what it's not about so far. All right, and so, so now, having, having sort of cleared some of that away so that we can apply the, the true message of the passage, the clear teaching of God's Word, then when confronted with our sin, repentance is the only remedy. When we see our failures before, before God, repenting, turning away from sin and turning toward God 
is the only solution. And that requires a full confession without excuse, without laying blame at the feet of others, without, without trying to, to soften our guilt. Because notice the response of Ezra when his preaching, he's been here in Jerusalem now a few months, when his preaching exposes the sin of God's people. Probably something that, that he was aware of before this moment, but waits until the leaders, convicted by sin, come to him to acknowledge their sinfulness. And so Ezra, tearing his cloak, expressing visually the the horror of sin, we read in verse 5, then comes at the time of the evening sacrifice. We're told in verse 5, Ezra says, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And then we have the powerful prayer of Ezra. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed I'm too disgraced to lift up my face to you. He bears the guilt and the shame, the embarrassment of coming before God. And then using poetic language there in verse 6, he describes the, the, the overwhelming size, the greatness of our sins. Why am I ashamed? Because our sins are higher than our heads. We're swallowed up by our sin. Our guilt, it reaches up into the heavens. We are consumed by our guilt. Ezra acknowledges the the sinfulness of of his ancestors. He even acknowledges that God has been right in bringing judgment upon the people. But notice the the language that he uses to describe their sin. In verse 10, Ezra is summarizing the the teachings of of the Old Testament. And we read that that he says, but now, O O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants. And then summarizing the Old Testament in verse 11, he says, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Do you hear the language he's using to describe sin? That it's a pollution, a corruption, it's detestable, it's impure. And so sin should be obviously repulsive. It should be something you step back and say, oh, what have I done? Look at this mess that I have made, and yet too often we treat sin very casually. It's not a big deal. I mean, I know people that have done worse than me. We minimize our sin. There's an image of of a story from my childhood that my dad tells. And, you know, you, if you've met my dad, you know he's a storyteller. But, but there's one story of, of him uh, early in his, in his work uh, installing a, a burglar and fire alarms in a, at a construct, large construction site. They're there at the site, and there is no water. The water has been shut off. And so they've, they've gotten sandwiches, but they're filthy. And so in order to wash his hands, in the, in the first service, I said, in order to get a drink. My dad had to correct me afterwards. Um, the image is still gross to me either way. But my dad my dad went into the only place that there was any water, which was water that was in the toilet, and came out having washed his hands in the toilet. And, and, and everyone with him is just repulsed by this. Like, you, that, that's not better. That's worse. Now, my dad had actually smartly gone to this newly installed, newly constructed toilet, lifted off the lid of the tank in the back, and washed his hands in the back. I'm not sure it really solves the problem for me. Because there's something about that where you think, oh, that's, 
that's not going to work. That's gross. And yet, yet we're quick to try and justify our own sin, to step back from the filthiness. And I don't mean the, the, the filthiness of a newly installed toilet on a new construction site. I mean a, a rest stop toilet on a busy holiday weekend that hasn't been cleaned in, in 36 hours straight. And you walk into the room and you think, oh, I don't know if I can even use this. That's how we should respond to sin, recognizing how repulsive it is. And seeing the horror of sin, then we confess our sins, admitting them fully, openly before God, not attempting to hide them, but confessing our sins and turning toward God in hope. Notice the the language that that Ezra uses in this prayer, describing God. In verse 15, we read that, that God, the God of Israel, The Lord, the covenant God, Ezra says, you are righteous. God, I look at my sin and it's filthy and horrible, but when I look to you, you are pure and perfect and righteous. In my own sin, I stand condemned and filthy, but God, you are perfect. But that wouldn't be enough to only have a righteous judge if you came before him guilty. But Ezra understands that the righteousness of God is also shown in God's grace. We saw it back in verse 8. Look there in chapter 9, Ezra 9, verse 8. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. You see, Ezra recognizes that, that God was just in punishing their sins, sending them into exile, but he has been gracious to let them survive, to bring them back, to give them the temple, to give them hope in the land. God has been merciful he hasn't, he, he hasn't destroyed the people. That's, that's what Ezra says in verse, in verse 13, that God has shown mercy. God, even though our, our evil deeds and our great guilt, yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved. God has been merciful withholding judgment. And really, we see that throughout the entire, entire Bible. For when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they brought death upon humanity, the story of the Bible could have ended there. God in justice destroying humanity, and yet he has, he has not punished us as much as our sins deserved. He has been gracious. He has left a remnant. He has given us hope because he is a God of justice. He is a God of grace. And so true confession of sins is, a, is an honest admission of the filth of our sins, the grace of God, and then we repent and turn from sin. We turn toward God in new obedience to do his will. That's that's what Ezra says. We actually already looked at verse 11 of chapter 10, but but look there again with me. They were given a specific command, but, but the first half of the verse is a general principle applicable even to us today. Ezra chapter 10, verse 11. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. See, repentance begins in prayer, coming to God and confessing our sins, but it does not end there. Because many of us can get up from prayer and say, well, I'm glad to get that off my chest. Now let's go back and have a little bit of fun. And we go right back to the same thing we were doing. It's like as a parent when your children are beating on each other in the room and you step into the room to stop them and they Calm down for 10 seconds until you're barely out of the room. Your shadow hasn't even crossed the threshold, and they're screaming at each other again. Yet that's how we act in our sinfulness. Yes, we confess our sin, 
in order to justify sinning some more. But that's not repentance. Repentance is a true confession of sin and then turning away from sin in obedience. It is to make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. It means we respond to God in gospel obedience. There can be no cover-up of our sins. And we see that in this passage. The reason that the, the leaders of God's people came to Ezra back in chapter 9 was because the people of Israel, chapter 9, verse 1, including the priests and Levites, are guilty of sin. The leaders of God's people, the, those with moral standing, with religious authority, are guilty of sin. And there is no attempt to, to brush that aside, to put it under the rug. True confession exposes sinfulness. And so we see that when the names of those who are guilty are listed here in chapter 10, it begins with the priests who have sinned against God and are required to bring offerings for their guilt. See, no one is beyond condemnation. We are all guilty. And so we, when we feel the weight of our sin, we look for ways to, to justify ourselves, to, to, try and, to try and make sense of our own lives. But it's as if in trying to clean up the mess, we've just made things worse. And so too often we live lives of quiet desperation, hoping that no one will find out what we have done. Trapped by the guilt of our sin. See, but true freedom from sin, true forgiveness comes when we are, when we are wonderfully honest with God. And then we turn and find forgiveness in him. And then we can live lives freed from the guilt that was dragging us down. Free to genuinely love and serve others. Not to atone for what we have done, because the atonement price has been paid in the sacrifice. But to do what is right. The only way to find real freedom is to find forgiveness in God himself. And Ezra is the mediator for God's people. He's the one who stands between God and the people. He's the one who comes and leads them in prayer. And yet, notice, notice in, the, in this prayer the language that he uses. He doesn't say, God, they need you to forgive them. He comes and uses the language of, God, I am guilty. Our sins. He identifies with the people. In, in this specific instance, he could have actually pled his innocence. I've not done the thing that they're guilty of doing. And yet, he mediates for his people. He identifies with his people. He knows that they are called by God to be holy. A holy people. That was the language we saw in verse 2. And that's the language the, the New Testament, the apostles will use to describe us, the church of God. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, you'll see this language, this Old Testament language applied to the New Testament people of God, the church. In, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we read, But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's that same imagery from Ezra. You are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now 
You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The apostle speaking to the church gathered from among the nations describes that we are now the people of God, God's holy nation. And how did this happen? How did we become holy in God? Not because the the apostles went around picking the best people and saying, well, yep, you can be in because you're already holy. No, the apostles made the gospel known to everyone. Those that are called holy are called holy because of what God has done for them. If you look back in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has already explained it to the church. He says that we are called, chapter 1, verse 16 of 1 Peter, to be holy because God has said, I am holy. That's the call placed on everyone who follows after God. Be holy because I am holy. And then Peter explains, well, then how can we, sinners, live lives of holiness? Well, it's because of the way God has treated you, the way God has forgiven you. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Peter is saying, you you can obey because of the price that was already paid to forgive you. How were you forgiven? How were you redeemed? How were you bought out of sin? 1 Peter 1 verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. You see, Peter is picking up on this language of the Old Testament, that we need a perfect mediator. Not merely a man like Ezra who stands with us in our guilt, but guilty himself. We need a perfect mediator who can stand with us in our guilt, yet innocent himself. The Son of God who can bear the weight for our sins, the perfect lamb without blemish or defect. And so the call of God on our lives when we see our sin is to confess your sins, to look to Jesus Christ and to go in gospel obedience. It's pretty straightforward. Yet for so many of us, it remains so difficult to do. Confess your sins, look to Jesus, and now go in gospel obedience. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us in the hope of the gospel that where we are quick to cover our sins, that you would, you would show us the truth of who we are. That we would be willing to admit our failures. Not as those who grovel before you without hope, but as those who come with the expectation of forgiveness because we see the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfect Son of God who took our sins in himself. Jesus, our perfect Lamb. Jesus, our one true mediator. Lord, I pray for those that that wrestle with this truth today, that you would give them the faith to believe, the joy to see the forgiveness that is theirs when they turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Lord, help us to be people who follow this pattern of gospel obedience, to honestly confess our sins, to look to Jesus, and to turn in obedience to you. 
Lord, help us to be people who are quick to confess, willing to repent. Lord, we rejoice in the good news announced to us by our Savior himself. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.